Picture this. You're driving on the open road, taking in the beautiful views this country offers. Then out of nowhere, you hear a noise and your car breaks down. While still frustrating, you feel protected because you have a plan through CarShield. CarShield has helped millions of drivers from having to pay back-breaking car repair costs. All you have to do is call before a breakdown. Plans can pay for expensive repairs on your out-of-warranty car, truck, or SUV. All for CarShield's low monthly rate that never goes up as long as you cover your car. With a plan through CarShield, you get protection on over 5,000 major parts and systems with just a visit to carshield.com Shapiro. I'm talking big money items like your transmission, engine, electronics, and so much more. CarShield is here to keep you moving forward and make car breakdowns and the repairs that follow just a tiny bump in the road. Go to carshield.com Shapiro. Protect yourself from the unprecedented rise in costs for parts and repairs. Visit now to save 20%. CarShield.com slash Shapiro. That's CarShield.com slash Shapiro. You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. Today, we sit down with Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California, San Diego, Brian Keating. Brian is also the host of the podcast, Into the Impossible. Brian's new PragerU video is titled, Follow the Science, where he discusses what science can tell us and what it can't. Let's jump right in. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Georgia. I'm a longtime subscriber and fan. So I actually looked up your podcast before doing this interview, and it turns out you uh, address basically all of my favorite topics loop quantum gravity, <laughs> hypotheses for God. So, and it looked like you were kind of a hoot. So I was excited to start this interview. Thank you. Yeah, I pride myself on uh, diversity in the most important ways possible. Something you discussed in your video that I'd like to start with is you talked about how science can create knowledge, but it can't create wisdom. And it reminds me of the phrase, uh, science describes, but it doesn't prescribe. So can you, for the audience, uh, do a little example to kind of show what you mean by science creates knowledge, but it doesn't create wisdom? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really nowhere better illustrated than if you look at the lives of the greatest scientists of the past hundred years. These are uh, typically men, although thankfully it is getting more common to see women rising to the ranks of Nobel laureates. However, uh, some of the most uh, famous Nobel laureates in history had some of the most odious opinions about policy towards racial minorities, towards women. And in many respects, it's uh, it's really kind of shameful that we venerate these people for their knowledge so much that it really crosses the boundary into per perceiving that they might have some special wisdom. And I always say it's quite it's quite dangerous to do that because if you look to somebody purely based on their knowledge, they'll never be a person who knows more than the internet, than a, the most powerful supercomputer. But what's really lacking is wisdom. And there's really no substitute for kind of the building on life experience that uh, sadly so many of my fellow scientists miss out on because they focus so much 
on their knowledge acquisition rather than wisdom acquisition and the meaning of what they do rather than the value of what they do. Well, that makes me think a lot about COVID because obviously this past year, we've all heard the phrase, follow the science. But as your video discussed, uh, science can give you data, but it can't necessarily give you a prescription for what to do with that data. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it was certainly running through the back of my mind as a theme that we often hear, you know, follow the science or we listen to science or we're the party of science. And, you know, science has no political affiliation. Uh, no one ever looks up at a constellation and says, oh, that's the uh, Republican constellation over there. There's a Democratic asteroid coming uh, in that direction. It doesn't exist. So science should be apolitical. And we don't elect scientists to make decisions for us as sort of this intellectualocracy. Uh, and as even Nobel laureates have told me on my podcast, you know, if you think we're really bright and we have some special wisdom, you've never seen us trying to make a selection for breakfast in the morning uh, that we got our Nobel Prizes. So I think, yes, it is very dangerous to say that science belongs to an individual or even that there is groupthink. You know, this, this notion that we should trust the science sometimes, again, gets distorted into a message of the, the real message being you should obey scientists. And again, we never elected these people, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how many Nobel Prizes they might have. We don't elect them. We elect politicians. And it's bad for politicians that we elect, the president, vice president, et cetera, to derelict their duty and say, we're just going to follow the science as if there is uniformity of, of thought within science. If there was, it would be a bad day for science. In your video, you also talk about what good science is. And actually, I want to play a clip of that, and then I'm going to ask you a question about it. So how do we do good science? This is not a new question. Since the 17th century, scientists have employed the so-called scientific method to guide their work. It's not a perfect guide by any means, but it's pretty darn good. The method involves, one, formulating a theory. Two, predicting the evidence that should be found if the theory is true. Three, collecting data. Four, analyzing the data. Five, refining the theory and presenting evidence to other experts. So in cases like COVID, and I also think of maybe climate change, when we're in a situation where we're very reliant on models because models are all we have, um, what does good science look like in those situations where we're, where we're considering a threat for the future or potential threat? So what's confusing sometimes for lay people uh, who are not scientists is the distinction between a theory and a model. We typically think of things, oh, a theory is just a, kind of an opinion. That's just your theory. But actually in science, a theory is a very well-tested set of hypotheses backed by observational evidence, tested by claims, and often backed by consensus. However, a model might just be a prediction made by a single individual based on a preceding theory or hypothesis. And so they carry very different weights. And so as I say, you know, kind of channeling my inner Yogi Berra, it's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. In this case, it's hard for a one-time only situation like uh, our universe or like a global pandemic, which really doesn't happen all that often, to make far-reaching implications based on a model of with very limited input data. That's a very big challenge, and it's and it is troubling when it is used for political reasons rather than for purely scientific reasons. And so that's the, sort of the purpose of this of this uh, Prager University video is to illuminate for the layperson what do scientists actually do and for that reason I'm very proud to really uh, to to convey to a to a lay audience the meaning of what we as scientists do and the limitations of what we do and when we should have some skepticism at least on the part of the layperson
I guess a question for me as a layperson would be, how can I tell if I'm sort of, um, if the research that I'm reading, say in a magazine or, or whatever, if it's a good, if it's good science that I'm looking at versus kind of shoddy science. So are there any red flags that we should look for or what does good science look like, would you say, especially in these situations? Yeah, of course, you know, just as the situation itself is a one-time thing, your reaction to it, let's hope, is a one-time situation. Hopefully we won't be dealing with pandemics and so forth, um, you know, in the near term. Uh, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to know when you hear these titles and you hear this uniformity and unanimity. Uh, I would say the the distinction that you should always make is, am I being asked to obey a scientist or listen to a scientist? And as the scientific method progresses, it's based on scientists questioning other scientists. So I am personally very skeptical. And even when I was a layperson, not a professor, for example, I was very skeptical when I would hear things like all these scientists agree uh, in X, Y, or Z. Because as I point out in the video, many different times in human history have scientists been on the wrong side of scientific history, even the majority of those speaking as scientists in their day. So it's very, uh, it should be sort of troubling. Uh, it doesn't affect your daily life. I know loop quantum gravity is very important to you, Georgia, but uh, to most people, it doesn't really affect their day. So if scientists kind of debate about loop quantum gravity or the Big Bang or, you know, e even things like, you know, uh, the, the, the future of artificial intelligence and so forth, these might, for now at least, uh, be mo mostly theoretical or mostly potential possibilities, might be metaphysically, might be theological, which is very important, or philosophical. However, they don't impact your daily life. When something is said to impact your daily life, that's when you should take notice and really dig into it and make sure you understand what are the motivations for scientists making specific claims and why should I be uh, asked to obey a scientist when I elected uh, the president, vice president, et cetera. I want to ask you about politics and science. So obviously we have our petty mask wars, but I'm more concerned about political pressure that scientists may feel in terms of what they should be studying and what they can and can't get published. So can you talk a little bit about the pressure that scientists feel behind the scenes, if there are any, um, and how that affects our ability to get good quality science? Yeah, uh, scientists suffer from a whole panoply of different uh, pressures within academia and even outside in industry. We in academia have pressure to get into the best colleges, the best graduate schools, the best postdoctoral programs. If we're very lucky, we become professors. Then we have to compete for tenure. And at all these different levels, you're competing, so to speak, against the best and brightest that the world has to offer uh, from all different uh, corners of the planet. And so it's, it's extremely challenging. It's very limited. And unlike, say, uh, the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company, there are 500 companies in the Fortune 500. There's only one Nobel Prize. There's only one, you know, uh, National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health. So a lot of times there is pressure to conform to the standard practices, to the best practices, which sometimes makes people much more conservative, you know, little c, uh, than, than is good for the actual generation and perpetuation of knowledge. And I think on the one hand, we spend a pittance on the scientific research compared to how much we spend on lipstick and, and other things. Uh, my favorite statistic is that we spend more on lipstick than all of NASA's budget. Now, lipstick's important, as you can tell, uh, you know, from my appearance. Uh, but uh, but nevertheless, the future of the world, we're always told, is at stake with, with things like STEM and, and potentially human-induced climate change. I mentioned that in the video. And so 
what what could be more important? And I think that then gets driven by political decisions, budgetary decisions. And yes, it is a finite game in terms of how much funding you can get. There are winners for every proposal. There are losers for every proposal, every funding opportunity. But the fundamental dichotomy is that science is an infinite game. You know, there's oh, you never win science. You're never like, oh, I won science. I got 100% scientific market share. That will never happen. And so it is a challenge to balance that dichotomy on this on this knife edge between doing the best high risk science, which often is high reward, but also kind of doing the mundane things that you need to do to keep your laboratory, your graduate students, et cetera, funded. So yes, there there are certain best practices. And unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't allow for the most beautiful of scientific things, which is serendipity. When you discover something completely unexpected, that's becoming you know less and less common, unfortunately, within science. An issue I think we've had over this past year is a breakdown in trust between the public and the so-called experts, the scientific community. I think a lot of people have concerns that politics are getting into science and that's affecting the kind of information that we're able to get. So my question is, as lay people, is there anything we can do to help rebuild that relationship in terms of supporting integrity in science and making it easier for scientists to uh, pursue things boldly and honestly and with integrity? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. I find it very challenging when I talk to the public because they feel like I am doing something very specialized with specialized equipment. And, you know, they wouldn't go into a job site and take away a jackhammer, you know, from a construction worker any more than they feel like they have a right to know about my knowledge that I've acquired in my laboratory. However, I always point out I'm a public servant. I work for the state of California. But anybody who's been funded by a National Science Foundation grant, a NASA grant, we're funded by U.S. taxpayers. So never, ever forget that they have you have a right as a taxpayer to to sort of be included in the scientific process, to have things explained to you in a way that you can understand them. As I quote from famed Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, he said, you know, the first principle is that you shouldn't fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And after you have not fooled yourself, then you can work on not fooling other scientists and not fooling the public itself. Because in that sense, you're doing a real disservice to the pursuit of truth. And we as scientists should be merchants of truth. So yes, I say demand answers that you can understand. Understand that science is provisional, but that's a good thing. And that science is argumentative, provisional, consensus-based, but Ask for things to be understood and participate in the scientific process and tell scientists that you support them and that you should argue to our government. It's one of the few things that all you know politicians used to agree on, that supporting science was good and it was cutting across political boundaries. So it's a safe space <laughs> uh, for, for uh, the layperson to occupy. And it should be to the benefit of scientists. On the flip side, scientists have an obligation to do some sort of outreach to the public. And it's typically not within our purview. We always say, you know, how do you know a scientist is outgoing because he looks at your shoes when he talks to you instead of his own uh, or her own. But the point uh, that I'm trying to make is we have an obligation also to present in digestible form. And I try to do this on my YouTube channel and my podcast to do outreach to the public because you all pay my salary one way or another. And I am blessed to have a job that don't tell Governor Newsom, I would probably do it for free. Oh, the gruesome Newsom. All right. So, Brian, where can we find you online? Uh, I'm uh, available on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating. 
Uh, I am also on YouTube. I have a really growing list of Nobel laureates and Daily Wire uh, personalities. I hope to get you on the show someday, George. I've had Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Dennis Prager is coming up. And I've also had nine other Nobel Prize winners uh, in addition to Michael and Ben and 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 so forth. So I've uh, I have on wonderful guests. I'm also on a podcast, uh, Into the Impossible podcast, where we deconstruct the most magnificent minds in the multiverse. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, George. It's a real pleasure. All right. That's the end of today's Office Hours. Make sure to tune in next week for our conversation with a new PragerU presenter. I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the video version of this show, or if you haven't seen this week's PragerU 5-minute video, make sure to click on the link in the description below, or head over to dailywire.com. We'll see you next Monday for a new interview with another PragerU presenter. (music) 